Welcome to Breakout Startups, a podcast about the most prominent entrepreneurs and investors building the companies that transform our lives. My name is Tomer Federman. I'm an entrepreneur and an angel investor in early stage enterprise and fintech startups. I have more than 15 years of experience in tech and previously was on the product side at Facebook, where I led product strategy and global growth of some of Facebook's major ad products. You can find me on Twitter at Tomer Federman. Before we begin, please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on the Breakout Startups podcast represents an investment or financial advice. Please, do your own research. Also, if you like this episode of Breakout Startups, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out. Okay, let's do this. So today I'm really excited to welcome a special guest to the show, Rahul Vora, the founder and CEO of Superhuman. Rahul, welcome to the show. Great, and thank you for having me. Why don't we start with what is Superhuman? Superhuman is the fastest email experience in the world. Most of our customers get through their inbox twice as fast as before, and many of them see inbox zero for the first time in years. So, Raul, I guess the obvious question is, how is Superhuman different than the, both, I guess, the free and the paid versions out there? Sure. And for folks that don't know, Superhuman is not a free product. We charge $30 per month for Superhuman and everybody pays. There's no free trial. There's no freemium tier. And I always say the same thing when I'm asked a question like this. Before you figure out pricing, you must first figure out your positioning. And we started with this really wonderful article by Ariel Jackson positioning your startup is vital. Here's how to nail it. And she advises using a formula like the following. Essentially, it's a little bit of a, a Mad Libs or a template game. And it goes for a target customer who has a statement of need or opportunity. Your product is in a category that has some kind of key benefit. And unlike competing alternatives, there is some primary differentiation. And she gives the example of Harley-Davidson. So the example goes, the only motorcycle manufacturer that makes big, loud motorcycles for macho wannabes, mostly in the United States, who want to join an era of cowboys in a time of decreasing personal freedom. So we thought about this hard for superhuman. And we met up with Ariel, who, by the way, she's super awesome. We did further reading, in particular, the book, positioning the battle for your mind was very helpful. So we started to ask ourselves questions like, are we the Ford of email? Not really. Are we the Mercedes or the BMW of email? Not quite, but it in some way is getting there. Are we the Tesla of email? And that's getting a lot closer. And in 2015, so five years ago now, we came up with the following positioning. For founders, CEOs, and managers of high-growth technology companies who feel like their work is mostly email, Superhuman is the fastest email experience ever made. It's what Gmail could be if it were made today instead of 15 years ago. And unlike Gmail, 
superhuman is meticulously crafted so that everything happens in a hundred milliseconds or less. And we, of course, have since expanded beyond that very tightly defined target. But the point is, when you hear that positioning, it's clear that superhuman is a premium tool for a premium market. And only once you've understood your positioning, can you then move on to pricing. And one of the best books on this topic is a book called Monetizing Innovation by an author, Madhavan Ramanujan. Now, Madhavan covers a lot of ways to develop pricing, and we use one of the easiest methods, which is the Van Westendorp price sensitivity meter. Essentially, you ask your users four questions. Number one, at what price would you consider Superhuman to be so expensive that you would not consider buying it? Number two, at what price would you consider Superhuman to be priced so low that you would feel the quality couldn't be very good? Number three, at what price would you consider Superhuman to be starting to get expensive? So that it isn't out of the question, you'd have to give some thought to buying it, but you would buy it anyway. And number four, at what price would you consider Superhuman to be a bargain, a great buy for the money? Now, most startups go after fourth question. You do the survey, it's really interesting, you can plot it on a graph, look at the intersections, take the median answer to question four, that's what most startups would do. But we are a premium startup going up against a free incumbent. And so the price point that supports that position is actually the third question. When does it feel expensive, but you'd still buy it anyway? And you could imagine that Tesla did this with the Model S also. Now, for us, the median answer for the third question was, in fact, $30 per month. And that's how we picked our price. Hmm. Interesting. So I want to get back to the price for a second and how you got to $30. But before that, so you mentioned you basically consider yourself to provide the fastest email experience out there. And I think you also talk about helping users get to inbox zero, right? Why are these so important? I mean, why, you know, when you use other services, even if they're a bit slower, like, why is that important? And maybe if you can talk also, Raul, about who is this important to, who your target audience is. We built Superhuman for the kind of people for whom email is work and work is email. And that is a surprisingly wide category of people. It turns out there are 1 billion professionals in the world. And on average, we do three hours a day of email. Now, remember, that's the average professional. So there are plenty who do even more. Now, the core value proposition is that you get through your email twice as fast, and that translates into saving many hours per week. So the question to ask is, who would benefit from getting many hours per week back to be able to either do other different kinds of work or to do things outside of work and become a more full and complete and balanced human being? And that's why Superhuman has such broad appeal. Now, it started off in Silicon Valley, of course. It started off with tech founders and VCs because tech founders and VCs do an especially large amount of email. But it always comes back to the notion that it's for anyone who does a lot of email who wants to get time back. And today we have doctors, we have lawyers, we have DJs, we have well-known celebrities, of course have executives, 
We have people who have every single kind of job role and function inside companies. The thing that unites all of these folks is that they do a ton of email for their work. Yeah, that makes sense. And how does that differ between mobile and desktop? It's roughly speaking the same. I mean, a lot of people send more email from the desktop than from the phone. That is the most common outcome. But there are 15% of people who, so to speak, are mobile whales. They are a mobile-centric emailer, and they have demands out of their mobile email experience much like what most of us would have from our desktop email experience. And at Superhuman, we don't try and say, well, you have to do it on desktop or you have to do it on mobile. In fact, we pride ourselves on having created a mobile experience where you can actually get work done. For example, we have a really powerful feature called snippets. You can think of these as canned responses or templates on steroids. They don't just do one thing, which is insert text. They can do multiple things. They can reply, they can forward, they can add people to CC, they can BCC the CRM, as well as typing out your email. Now, most companies would just build that on desktop. But on Superhuman, you can use your snippets on the go, on the phone, super fast, and with just one hand as well. So we really don't draw the distinction. We try and make people twice as fast wherever they are. How did you get the idea for Superhuman? What inspired you to start the company? So I think to understand this, we have to go back to 2010 when I founded my last startup, Reportive. Some people might remember that as the first Gmail plugin to scale to millions of users. It showed you everything about your contacts right inside your inbox. When people emailed you, we showed you what they look like, where they work, their recent tweets, links to their social profiles. That company grew very rapidly. And less than two years later, we were acquired by LinkedIn. And at LinkedIn, we ran all of our email integrations. During those four years, I developed a very intimate view of email and how professionals do it. I could see Gmail getting worse every single year, becoming more cluttered, using more memory, consuming more CPU, slowing down your machine, still not working properly offline. And on top of that, people were installing plugins like ours, Reportive, but also Boomerang, Mixmax, Clearbit, you name it, they had it. And each plugin took those problems of clutter, memory, CPU performance offline, and made all of them dramatically worse. So we decided it is time for change. We imagined an email experience that is blazingly fast, where searches are instantaneous, where every interaction takes place in 100 milliseconds or less, an experience where you never had to touch the mouse, where you could do everything from the keyboard and fly through your inbox, an experience that just worked offline so you could be productive anywhere, and an email experience that had the best Gmail plugins built in natively, and yet somehow was still subtle, minimal, and visually gorgeous. And with that, we built Superhuman, and that was the vision from day one back in 2014. And today, most of our users are now getting through their email twice as fast, and as I said, many of them are seeing Inbox Zero for the first time in years. And we, in fact, just wrapped up an analysis so I can share those numbers. 36% of our users now hit Inbox Zero 
within the onboarding itself. And more than half of all of our users hit Inbox Zero within four hours of starting to use the product. Maybe I'm one of the few, but I never got like why Inbox Zero is so important. What's the thinking behind that? Like, why do you think it's important to get to Inbox Zero? It certainly isn't for everybody. And it's half of our users who get there. But if you were to ask those half of those users, what lets them sleep at night? What lets them feel like they're on top of things? How do they prevent things falling through the cracks? They would say it's that they maintain Inbox Zero. If you were to interview them further, you would find that they all share the following three attributes. Their job function literally requires them to respond quickly to people. Because if they don't, they would either block their team or miss opportunities or damage their reputation. And that's true in a lot of different job functions, whether it's the founder running the company, the investors on the board, the salespeople who have to get back to uh, leads or recruiters trying to hire or customer success or a solo entrepreneur or indeed, as I mentioned, doctors or lawyers or any other kind of professional. They all share this unique thing that getting back to people reliably, quickly, is super important. And for that kind of personality, that kind of persona, Inbox Zero can be a tremendous uplift in terms of productivity and also stress relief and maintaining equanimity. So one of the things I really wanted, I was curious about asking you, Raul, and that I really like about what you're doing is I know you've talked previously about being a gamer at heart, and it seems like you've incorporated a lot of game design principles into superhuman. Can you talk more about that? Sure. It all starts with the question, how do you design a good game? And I have been obsessed with this question for my entire life. As a kid, I learned how to code just so I could make games. And before I was a founder, I worked professionally as a game designer. And as a founder, I've gone deep into the principles of game design. As it turns out, there isn't really a unifying theory of game design. To create games, we need to draw upon the art and science of multiple fields, psychology, mathematics, storytelling, interaction design, to name just a few. And at Superhuman, I've now whittled this down to five factors to consider. Number one, goals. Number two, emotions. Number three, controls. Number four, toys. And number five, perhaps one of the most important of all, flow. And at Superhuman, when we're designing our product, even when we're designing our whole customer experience and journey, we consider each of these factors very carefully. And we've developed principles around every single one of them. Hmm. Interesting. How do you view differently, I guess, game design as opposed to gamification? Like, can you talk about the differences and why one is maybe more important than the other? Sure. So game design is not gamification. It is not simply taking your product and adding points, levels, trophies, or badges. And 10 years ago, gamification was a really big deal, but it didn't work. And to understand why, I think we really have to understand human motivation. And there's a wonderful experiment that shows this. 
In the 1970s, researchers from Stanford recruited kids aged around three to four years old. Now, all of these kids were generally interested in drawing. Some kids were told they would get a reward, a certificate with a gold seal and a ribbon. Some kids were not told about any reward, so they did not expect one or even know of one. Each child was invited into a separate room to draw for six minutes, and then afterwards they would either get the reward or not. And over the next few days, the children were observed to see how much they would continue to draw by themselves. Here's the thing. The children with no reward spent 17% of their time drawing. But the children who expected a reward, they only spent 8% of their time drawing. In other words, the reward had halved their motivation. So what's happening here? So researchers differentiate between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. With intrinsic motivation, we do things because they are inherently interesting and satisfying. With extrinsic motivation, we do things to earn rewards and achieve external goals. And that's the problem with rewards. They massively undermine intrinsic motivation. And that ultimately is why gamification does not work. When gamification does work, the underlying experience was already a game. So my advice to founders and builders listening would be, don't try and add gamification to your product. Instead, approach it with the entire toolkit of game design. And is that also how you were able to get the word out? I mean, obviously, you've done an incredible job in getting a lot of buzz around superhuman, getting a lot of traction. Can you talk about how you did that and how you created that initial interest in the product? There are different phases for different times in the company. In year one, and this is what I advise every founder I work with to do, the most efficient thing is to inject yourself into the new cycle that's relevant to your company. For example, we had started Superhuman around the 2014-2015 timeframe. Around that time, Dropbox had acquired Mailbox for north of $100 million, and it was an eye-opening acquisition not only because of the price, but because Dropbox had really only been publicly launched for about a week before this happened. So everyone's attention was on Mailbox. And it, of course, changed the face of mobile email. We all got introduced to swipe to archive as a result. A short year later, and Mailbox was shut down. Wow, big news. And this was something that sort of shook the industry because we could all see it coming. We could all see it happening. I took a baton myself as a founder who had started a company who'd sold it successfully to LinkedIn in the space of email to write my perspective. So I wrote what is still one of the most widely read articles on how to survive an M&A process, how to not only get through an acquisition, but to thrive in an acquisition. And I wrote that uh, on my Medium. I had it syndicated to one of the most popular Medium publications, also had it syndicated out to the wider press. And as a result of that article, was able to attract north of 10,000 signups to our wait list back in the day. And that kind of put us on the map and got the signups ball rolling. 
Now, in year two onwards, the strategy really does depend on your product. But for Superhuman, we've always had three core pillars of growth. We've had press, we've had content, and we've had virality. So the example that I just described was content. And I've tried to write a really groundbreaking article or come up with something very new and very fresh every single year. In that first year, it was how to survive and thrive in an acquisition. Then, of course, a year or two later, I wrote that really great piece on product market fit, which is still the most widely shared entrepreneurship article uh, this year. It was the most widely shared entrepreneurship article last year as well. And for those that don't know, I'm happy to talk in more detail about it now. But essentially, I go in depth to provide an algorithm for how you can iterate your way towards product market fit. And that has driven many tens of thousands of more signups uh, towards Superhuman as well. And more recently this year, I've been talking about game design. So over the course of the last few years, I've had three very clear topics that I've been able to talk about at length because they are interesting to our target market. So that's the pillar of content. In addition, there's been virality. Of course, there is the sent via superhuman email signature that you may have seen at the bottom of folks' emails. It turns out that that still works even now, decades after uh, companies like Hotmail have come and gone. And that sent via superhuman signature accounts for more than 10% of all site traffic. And then finally, of course, there's good old-fashioned press. We're in the press, very fortunate to be in the press a lot for a company of our size. And I think that's just because email is one of those things where every single person can relate to the problem, and it's a perennially mediagenic issue. Uh, it's just one of those things that journalists like to write about. And so between those three, we've been able to build a sustainable growth engine that's been remarkably effective. It seems like you were very thoughtful in how you approach your go-to-market strategy. Yes, email is something that is in the news, and of course, pretty much everyone uses it. But I think this is a lesson for any entrepreneur listening to this. Think about how your product can relate to whatever it is that's happening right now and try to tailor it to a bigger narrative. I've seen you guys do it extremely effectively and I think it's something that a lot of entrepreneurs can learn from. So switching gears a bit, Raul, one of the things also find really interesting is your approach to product market fit and how you're thinking about that both in your product development process and also the broader vision for the company. Can you talk about that a bit? Absolutely. So this story goes back to the summer of 2015, when we started, much like any other software company, by writing code. And in the summer of 2016, we were still coding. In the summer of 2017, we were still coding. I felt this incredible, intense pressure to launch, both from the team and also from within myself. After all, my last company, Reportive, had launched, scaled, and been acquired in less time. Yet here we were, two years in, and we still had not launched. But deep down inside, I knew 
no matter how intensely I felt pressure, a launch would go badly. I did not believe we had product market fit. And although I knew it, I couldn't just say that to the team. These are super ambitious, hyper-intelligent engineers. They poured their hearts and their souls into the product. I needed a plan. So in the April of 2017, I started my search for the holy grail, for a way to define product market fit, for a metric to measure product market fit, and for a methodology to systematically increase product market fit. I searched high and low. I read everything I could find. I spoke with all the experts. And then I came across this gentleman named Sean Ellis. Now, Sean ran growth in the early days of Dropbox, LogMeIn, and Eventbrite. He coined the term growth hacker. And Sean found a leading indicator of product market fit, one that is benchmarked and predictive. Just ask your users this. How would you feel if you could no longer use the product and measure the percent who answer very disappointed. After benchmarking hundreds of startups, Sean found that the companies that struggle to grow almost always get less than 40% very disappointed, but the companies that grow most easily almost always get more than 40%. If more than 40% of your users would be very disappointed without your product, you have initial product market fit. Now, this metric is more objective than a feeling. It predicts success better than net promoter score. And it's not only the best way to measure product market fit, we used it to develop our very own product market fit engine. And with this engine, we now have a methodology for systematically increasing product market fit, and it even automatically generates our roadmap for us, a roadmap that is guaranteed to increase product market fit. And for folks listening who'd like to learn more, like I mentioned, I've actually written this up in great detail. Uh, just search for superhuman product market fit, and you'll find a whole algorithm for helping you figure this out. And there's also a great new startup called Viable Fit, which has taken the product market fit engine and actually turned it into a product that can help you run this process as well. And what was it in the early days that you changed and then you felt like you finally hit product market fit? Well, there is no silver bullet, but the framework will work. The key that I found is to spend roughly half your time doubling down on the things that users love and half your time systematically addressing the objections that users have. If you only double down on the things that users love, as vision-driven teams tend to do, then you won't increase the percentage of people who would be very disappointed without your product. You won't increase the set of people who love your product because objections hold back the rest. If you only systematically address objections as feedback-driven teams tend to do, then a competitor will eventually overtake you because what a competitor will do is address those objections but do the special stuff that you do better than you do it. And so the optimal strategy is to spend half your time doing the things that make you special and half your time addressing the feedback that you're getting. Now, in our case, 
the things that make Superhuman special, it turns out, were things like its speed, its focus, the fact that it has a wonderful and an amazing set of keyboard shortcuts. You can do everything from the keyboard. That people are getting through their email twice as fast. Even the visual design, the aesthetics. So ever since we started doing these surveys five years ago, we've been doubling down on those facets and have a really big lead in those areas. But of course, there was just a set of things that were systematically holding people back. Way back when, when we did the surveys for the first time, it was that we didn't have a mobile app. Well, of course, we've since addressed that. We now have a really great mobile app. But then you enter the long tail where it gets less obvious and more interesting. Things like, your search is great, but I wish it worked better in the following fashion. Or I'd really like a way to do lightweight calendar management for my inbox. Or I'd like slightly better attachment handling in the following ways or the following integration. And then what do you do? Well, you just systematically work down that list. And if you do both of those activities, you will increase the set of people who are very disappointed without your product. In other words, you'll increase the percentage of people who love your product. And at the end of the day, that's what we need to do in order to get to that 40% threshold, at which point we can start to invest significant resources into growth. Hmm. So during these early days when you were waiting and waiting to release that initial version of Superhuman, it doesn't sound like you've made any significant pivot or anything like that. You just felt like you didn't have enough of the in-demand features in order to go live. Sort of. I wouldn't recommend significant pivots to folks who do this survey and they find that their product market fit score is in the realm of, let's say, 15 to 25. It's quite common that the first time you do this survey, it's in the realm of, let's say, 20 to 25. My perspective is that the score is eminently iterable from there. You can iterate your way from 20, hours started at 22, to 40% plus over the course of perhaps six months to a year. If, on the other hand, your score was significantly lower, if you were looking at 5 to 15%, then I might suggest a hard pivot. Then I might suggest trying to find something entirely different. That makes sense. So I want to go back, Raul, to a couple of things you said earlier. First, let's talk about pricing for a second. How did you get to that $30 price point? What was the process that you went through in order to determine that's the right price? So it goes back to that Van Westendorp survey. And in late 2015, we asked 100 of our earliest users those four questions. So to recap them again, at what price would it be so expensive you wouldn't buy it? At what price is it so cheap so that you also wouldn't buy it because you'd be worried about the quality? At what price would it start to feel expensive, but you'd still buy it anyway? And at what price would it be a bargain, a great buy for the money? Now, for us, the median answer to that fourth question was around 10 to $15. That's where people would say, oh, Superhuman is a really, really great bargain. But... If you are building a premium product, if your positioning is high-end, if you can legitimately claim to have the best products in the market, why would you price your product that way? Most other companies don't. 
we oriented around the third question. It starts to feel expensive, but when you think about it and you weigh up the pros and the cons, you would still buy it anyway. The median answer for that third question for us was $30 per month. Now, when you do this survey, you can do lots of exciting things with the data. You can plot, for example, the cumulative distribution of answers. And so you can look at the intersection between, let's say, the line that describes your product being so expensive that people wouldn't buying it, and the line that describes your, pri- your product being a bargain for the money. The intersection between those lines is the price at which the same percentage of people feel it's too expensive as feel it's a bargain for the money. And so by plotting these things, you can find these interesting price points, these interesting inflection points. The other really cool thing you can do, again, after you chart the data, is look for cliffs and overhangs. So it turns out that there's a lot of pricing psychology, as we all know, around the number nine. The number of people who might buy something when it's priced $99 compared to the number of people who might buy something when it's priced $100 is quite different. And so there is probably a cliff around there for a certain type of product. And you would see that on this chart as a jump in, let's say, in terms of the number of people who find it so expensive they wouldn't consider buying it, perhaps around the $90 to the $100 mark. You want to do these questions so you start to understand the psychology of buying behind your product. And there's a lot of intuition here. It's it's really difficult to just know. And so the best way to start to wrap your head around this is to ask the questions, collect the data, chart it, and then see where these cliffs are, see where there's price elasticity, and see where the lines intersect each other. Again, that sounds like a really thoughtful way to get to that answer. So the second thing I want to circle back to, Raul, is that waitlist approach. I think by now, correct me if I'm wrong, you have what, like around 350,000 users signed up to the waitlist. Is that right? It is. At this point, it's north of 360,000 people. That's crazy. So I guess the question is, why do you have a waitlist? Is that in order to create some sort of you know, fear of missing out or a feeling of scarcity, or is there another reason why you've decided to take that approach? I think our waitlist is widely misunderstood. People often assume it's to create some kind of sense of false scarcity. What it is actually is that we are laser focused on making sure that we can deliver a groundbreaking, truly delightful experience for every single one of our users. What folks may not know is that for every single user, we do a live concierge one-to-one onboarding. That means that when you sign up for Superhuman, you get to spend time with an expert in email, a guru of productivity, who's going to look at how you do your email today and show you how to do it twice as fast inside of Superhuman. Now, many people have said that's unscalable. Surely Superhuman cannot continue to do this. But this is our thing. We're just so obsessed with providing this 
white glove concierge experience. That is something that we heavily invest in. And we have a large team of amazing onboarding specialists who take our users through this process. So that's one reason. The second reason is that we want to make sure that the product experience itself is perfect and that it's not going to let you down. In fact, it's going to do the opposite and create amazement, joy, and delight. And if there's a reason why we think that it might not be ready for you yet, we'll ask you to wait and circle back. And a really simple example of that would be if you happen to use Office 365 or if you happen to use Android as your main email service provider or your main mobile email platform, then we know that Superhuman isn't the right fit for you today. But we are building those things. And towards the end of next year, when we hope to have them done, we'll circle back and say, hey, we're now ready for you. And we have a great onboarding specialist who's going to walk you through how to use this product. Get ready to save hours per week. And so that's why we run the waitlist process. Got it. So every single user that signs up for Superhuman goes through that onboarding process. That's right. Every single one. How long is the, I guess, the onboarding itself? Can you expand a bit more about what exactly happens during that onboarding experience? It typically takes around half an hour. It takes place over Zoom. Usually, but not always, the screen is shared. I would say that takes place in 99% plus of all calls with the onboarding specialist. The onboarding specialist then looks at how you have your Gmail configured or how you use mail app or whatever other email program that you're using, understands your email workflow, understands a little bit about your job, your role, because every function uses email quite differently. And then, of course, gets you going into inside of Superhuman. And we configure the product to be perfectly personalized to your needs. We'll create a structure that mirrors the structure of your day. And we'll then teach you how to go through your email twice as fast. A lot of this will come down to, for example, exploring the keyboard shortcuts and how to get through your email without ever touching the mouse. And there's a little bit of behavior change there. Because most people have that muscle memory to reach for the trackpad or to reach for their mouse when they want to move. And in Superhuman, you don't have to do that. We do the same with our mobile app. How can you run it? How can you drive it with one hand? How do you get out of the habit of saying, oh, I'll do that on my desktop? Because it turns out that for basically anything you might want to do, you can actually achieve it and do it quickly from our mobile app. And then finally, we'll help wipe the slate clean in terms of inbox zero. So there's a lot of people who have aspiration to get there, but they feel it's impossible because they may have hundreds of thousands or millions of emails in their inbox. And so we'll wipe the slate clean. We'll archive everything, let's say, that might be three or four days older, maybe leaving behind starred emails or certain unread emails. But getting that user significantly closer to inbox zero such that they are within a stone's throw and so that a few hours later they can actually achieve their goal of inbox zero. So that's the brief anatomical breakdown of an onboarding. And we found that they are remarkably effective and that our users love them too. I like that approach. 
Can you share some numbers, Raul, about how big is the company these days and where are you in terms of growth? I can't, unfortunately, share growth numbers as we are a venture-backed company. I can share that last year we grew 4x. This year has been an amazing growth period as well. And today we have about 55 going on 60 employees, very actively hiring across every area of the business. Okay. And is the team all based in the Bay Area? We, for the most part, are, yes. Of course, with COVID, there's been a little bit of a dispersion. We now have folks in New York. We have folks in Vancouver. We have folks uh, a little bit across the rest of the world as well. We've just hired our first executive, actually, in Seattle. So we're starting to grow our organizational muscle for folks not being here located in the Bay Area. But for the most part, most people are here in San Francisco or the surrounding cities. Got it. So I want to talk with you a bit, Raul, about fundraising. And I think you really are in a unique position because not only are you running a VC-backed company, and this isn't your first one, you also recently raised an angel fund. And so you kind of, I feel like you're wearing both hats, both as an investor and as an entrepreneur. And so I'm sure that a lot of listeners can learn from your experience. So with Superhuman, you've raised, what, over $50 million by now, right? That's right. $51 million so far. Right. Can you share some tips or best practices for entrepreneurs listening to this about... What's the right way to approach fundraising? What have you found to be successful? And maybe also what you are looking for when you're you know, on the other side of the table? The first thing I would say is, and maybe this goes without saying, but it's important, so I'll, I'll just say it. You should not fundraise for a business unless you see the possibility of growing into 10 times the valuation that you intend to raise money at. For example... If an investor is offering to invest at a valuation of $10 million, you should not fundraise unless you can see a path to your company being worth $100 million. If an, off, if an investor is offering to invest at a valuation of $100 million, you similarly should not fundraise unless you can see a path to being worth $1 billion. As a corollary, it is worth noting that most software businesses can grow to $10 million of ARR, and a great founder can position such a business to the right buyer for a $100 million exit. Therefore, you're almost always safe raising money with valuations in the low teens. But as your valuation grows beyond that, you should also know how the business will one day be valued at more than $100 million. Now, in terms of what we look for, in our angel fund. And for, for those that don't know, I run a small early stage angel fund with a good friend of mine, Todd Goldberg. We've been angel investing together for the last six years plus. We've now invested in over 70 companies together. We look for three different things. First of all, we look for founders who have the following magical combination. Number one, they know how to make something people want. And number two, they know how to make people realize they want it. 
If a startup only has one of these, it will unfortunately not be able to succeed. Secondly, we look for founders that demonstrate exceptionally high levels of grit. And we think of grit as the combination of passion and perseverance. Passion means that the founder will not easily get distracted with new interests or goals. And perseverance means that the founder will follow through with hard things despite challenges. The founders that have both, we have observed, are relentless in moving towards making their startup successful. And thirdly, we look for the possibility of a billion-dollar outcome. Many times we end up passing on great founders with great businesses because we were not able to get to conviction that the business could support a huge outcome. And that is, in fact, the most common reason for passing on investing in a company. Some great points there. And specifically when you were going through that process, even more recently when you raised your uh, latest Series B, well, I guess when you raise your Series B, it's maybe a bit different, actually, because you already have some tractions and users. But initially, when you were raising that seed round for Superhuman, how did you get investors convinced about the story? I mean, you go in, you tell them, listen, I'm building an email service. I'm going to charge 30 bucks a month for it. How did you get them excited? How did you get them, you know, see past that obvious huge challenge of competing with the likes of, Microsoft and Google and so forth? The advice differs depending on whether it's an angel round, sometimes called a pre-seed round, a seed round, or a series A. So we can just break it down and take each in turn. So with the angel round, and let's peg this at, let's say, zero to a million dollars, this is often done on a concept alone. It's not usually based on what you've built or what you will build, but simply because people trust that you are smart and that you will try really very hard. Now, one trick that we did, and this is I would advise for every founder, explain why this business is the one for you. Why are you the best situated person in the world to create this business? And for me with Superhuman, it was fairly obvious coming out of Reportive, having worked at LinkedIn, why I was the best situated person in the world. There were really only three or four people who, like myself, could actually take this on. And I happened to be one of the best of them. So those are your angel rounds. Now consider your seed rounds. These days, they're anything from two to four million. Occasionally, I see a seed round of five million. This typically requires more than just the concept. It usually requires a compelling demo or a prototype, perhaps even some early users or customers. The good news is that you do not have to demonstrate a work and go to market or anything like that. That said, you should have a compelling description on how you think distribution will work when you scale. Investors will want to know that you will not buckle at the first distribution hurdle. The trick here is to learn how to tell a billion-dollar story. In the early days of a company, it is easy to tell a story that is limited by what you might build in the next year or two, and I found it significantly easier to raise money once I was able to look past that and to share a compelling path to building a billion-dollar company. And lastly your Series A rounds. And these are anything from 5 to 15 to 20 to $25 million. They're getting really quite large. They are the most volatile of all rounds. 
I've seen these happen for companies that don't yet have a product in market, all the way to companies that have millions of dollars in revenue. Now, the trick I would advise here is simply to wait for an investor who believes. You can spend a lot of time trying to go to market, trying to pitch that the market will believe in you, but it is far more efficient to come across an investor who just already believes, who was already looking to back a company like you. Now, this, of course, requires patience. It requires the runway to survive whilst you wait for that ideal investor. But if you can pull it off, that is the best way to do a Series A. Some great points there. Thanks for sharing. So, Raul, before we wrap up, one last question. What are you excited about these days other than Superhuman and your fund? Any, you know, either a specific company or, or even more broadly, like a market trend that you're following closely? Yeah, great question. I'm really excited about a number of different trends happening in the broad market of software. And that these are things that I think have been spurred or accelerated due to COVID and the resulting remote work phenomenon. So I can mention three companies that I think are really interesting. Uh, one is a company called House. The second is a company called Daily. And the third is a company called Descript. So House is super, super interesting. They make, for folks that don't know, a low alcohol by volume aperitif, and they're able to actually sell this direct to consumer. So of course, when COVID hit, we've all been at home. There've been various levels of curfew. Bars and restaurants, for the most part, have been closed. And so people were getting a little bit stir crazy. Where did they go out for a drink? How did they relax with their friends? People ultimately ended up starting to drink at home. But then how do you buy that alcohol? And for, for a period, there was just this You know, it was really difficult. And it turns out that uh, certainly in America, it's very difficult to mail order alcohol, to directly buy it as a consumer because of distribution laws and because uh, it, it, it depends on the way that the alcohol was made and the, uh, the ABV, the percentage of alcohol in the product. Now, what House have found is essentially... A loophole uh, because what they're creating is derived from grapes but they're also making an aperitif that is delicious by itself or can also mix into a cocktail and they've found this incredibly fast-growing business that is perfectly timed for a period of the world where we want to be able to, to drink cocktails at home but we also don't want to get drunk and we want to be healthy and also it's really hard to buy Uh, and so it's just a perfect company for the perfect time. So that's one example. Another example is because we're all now working at home, every single software company is thinking about how they add video collaboration to their tool or to their product. And there's this very exciting company called Daily that in one click lets you add video calling, video collaboration to your product. And I actually don't know of a company that isn't considering adding that kind of a feature to their tool. They are also seeing phenomenal growth. 
the third, and this is my favorite new tool, and this is in the category of creator tools, is Descript. It's an incredible piece of audio and video editing software from Andrew Mason, who folks may remember as the founder of Groupon. And the amazing thing about Descript is that it works like a doc. You can record your podcast, your video, you can instantly see a Google Doc-like transcription of what was just said. And like in a Google Doc, you can actually select a piece of text, comment, and collaborate super easily with anyone else in your team. But here's where it gets mind-blowing. You can also select a piece of text and hit delete, and it will magically remove that piece of audio or video. You can automatically remove all filler words like um and ah, and you can even type in what you wish you would have said, and it will generate the audio in your voice as if you would have said it. And they call that last feature overdub. So if you produce audio or video, I highly recommend checking out the scripts. If you're looking to add video to your product, video calling, video collaboration, check out daily. If you're looking for something to drink that's delicious, check out house. And of course, way back when in the call, I mentioned Viable Fit. If you are a founder or an entrepreneur and you're looking to get to product market fit, check out viable.fit. And finally, I would be remiss if I didn't say, if you are a founder, an entrepreneur, an investor, a manager, or someone who just does a lot of email, check out Superhuman. Now, we do, of course, have a wait list, 360,000 people, like we've discussed. But what I will do for the community is if when you sign up, where we ask, how did you hear about Superhuman, you mentioned this podcast, we will jump you right to the front of the line. And so we'll get you onboarded as soon as we can. Wow, that's a big statement. There you go. <laughs> so Raul, fantastic list, first of all. And also, thanks for coming on the show. I thought you brought up some excellent points. So really appreciate you taking the time to share your insights. Great, and thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode of Breakout Startups, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out.